Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Man, we're off! We're off! But shut your pie hole! Because we are live! We're not live. And we are electric! We're not... We're, uh, is this radio electric? That's the name of my new wave album that's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> this next spring is Radio Electric. Um... It's got a couple of covers on it, sure, but mainly it's just observations I've had over the last year and a half. <laughs> uh, looking forward. Anyway, yeah, listen. We're all looking is forward it, to it. Um, is it a show? Would you say it's a show, Nat? Is it a show? Well, there's some news we've had, but you know, it's the, it's. Uh, I'll break the big news in a minute to you, Nick. Okay. All right. Well, you're listening to Fan Club. My name's Nick. This is. Nathaniel Metcalf. The man that needs no introduction. <laughs> Nathaniel Metcalf. Mr. Nathaniel Metcalf. Yeah, he could do with an introduction. Um, that's right. It's handy. Yeah. All right, it's handy. Um, so my name's Nick. This is Nick. I'm Nick Helm. And this is, you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Uh, um, and we've just hit the ground running, I guess. There's another classic episode first rule of fan club is tell your friends about fan club tell your friends second second rule of fan club please for the love of god tell your friends it's a little bit of a riff uh on uh on the the fight club mantra uh, which is the uh, first rule of fight club you know don't tell your friends and second rule is just bloody hell don't tell your mates and uh and do you know what's interesting about that film fight club uh, I don't know. What's interesting about it? It is celebrating its 11th anniversary this year. 11th? 27th? 22nd, isn't it? Or something? It came out in, came out in 2010. <laughs> uh, and there'll be more of those facts. That is like, just, that, is, that was a joke. For the people that haven't listened in before, that was a joke. And Nathaniel found that. Lol. Laugh out loud. <laughs> Laugh out loud. He found that lots of love. The problem with that is that I find scary about stuff like that is I went to see that as an adult. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You kind of feel like I was grown up when I saw that. And it's yes. 22 years old. That's what makes me. Yeah. I wasn't terribly old, but it was. It does. When I think back on it, it's not like you go, it's not nostalgic. It feels too long to be nostalgic for like, 22 years ago. It's like, I was grown up when I saw it. It was, I'm nostalgic because it was the first year of university for me. So it was like, I went to university and then there were all of these amazing films at the cinema because it was 1999, the greatest year for cinema. And um, so I'm sort of nostalgic about it. What makes you, what makes me kind of like, a little bit sick is when I look back at stuff like Mission Impossible or something like that, and you go, Tom Cruise was 32 when he made the first Mission Impossible. Yeah, yeah. And by the time, he was, I think he was like 34 or something like that. But by the time he made the first Mission Impossible film, I already thought that he was like an old man and his, you know, mm. like with, with the majority of his career behind him. And it was like, he what, he's done a TV, he's done a movie based on an old TV show. All right, good luck with that. Um, you know, I thought that was towards the end of Tom Cruise's career, and it was really just the beginning, and he was very young. 
And when you see like pictures of kind of like, I don't know, that 19, late 90s era Brad Pitt or someone like Matt Damon and you see just how young they looked, it makes you feel, because you just see them in films. So you don't really particularly, see, they, they age very slowly. Yeah. You know, yeah. like a stop motion figure. They aged in real time, I suppose. But when you go back and you watch one of their earlier films, it's kind of like, oh my God. And I always thought that I always thought that they were old. Uh, what, who was yeah. it? It was Leonardo DiCaprio. If you see Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon in The Departed, which I remember going to the cinema mm -hmm. as an adult after university. Uh, what was that, 2006? Yeah, I reckon 2006. But if you'd have told me The Departed came out in 2011, I'd have gone, sure. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel like, I feel like 2006 is really early for that. But um, yeah, they look like babies in that. But there you go. What's this news about Malta? It's not even about Malta. We've been told to forget Malta. We've been given some news and we've been told not to analyse the news too, uh, too much and just to accept it that we're doing really well. Apparently, there's a website called Listen Notes. And according to Listen Notes, global rank of podcasts, we're in the top 1.5% of all podcasts. Now, I'm questioning how that is possible. It sounds like we're doing incredibly well, but I'm also like skeptical that of the global ranking, does that suggest very few of those people are in Malta or any of the other territories? But I've been it told we can't analyse it too much. It makes me wonder why when I tweet about it, at most three people like my tweets. <laughs> yeah. But apparently and we're it, in the top 1.5% of all podcasts. Unless, unless everyone in the world has a podcast now. Do you know what I mean? Like, which they might. I don't think it's far off. I think what's unusual about what's unusual about our podcast is that we've folded a two podcasts into, you know, you could do one and I could do one. Mind you, you are doing one. <laughs> so I don't know. But you're doing that with your friend. Yeah. So... So that's two people. I think it's just, yeah, it's doubling up, isn't it? Maybe it's doubled um, up. It's great. I mean, it sounds great. I don't know what Listen Notes is, but it's a great website with top. Who's, who's telling you? Who's telling you to forget about Malta? Well, I'm not forgot, I've not forgot about Malta, but it just yeah, makes who, me think. You said we've been told to forget about Malta. Oh, no, just that I've said... Oh, Natalie said, forget about Malta. So that probably means we're not in the Maltese chart this week, but we are on Listen Oh, was she saying, she wasn't like saying forget about Malta because there's the, 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 she wasn't sort of like going, um, you know, the um, the data that, that we've got in from Malta um, is, is wrong. She's not saying forget about it. She's like going, don't get hung up on Malta. That's small fry. Yeah, yeah, I think she's saying, like, we're, we're a big deal now. We're worldwide. Not that I want to exclude any of our Maltese <laughs> listeners. Not that I want to exclude I mean, that, I suppose. I'd, I'd like to come out and to say um, I'm never going to forget about Malta. They mm -hmm. were there for me during uh, COVID 2020, and I'm going to be there for them. Mm. 
And so I'm not going to forget about them, regardless of what our producer seems to think. Uh, and I, and uh, I'm not going to stand by her on this one. I stand by her on most things. But... Irene, who works on the show, is going to Malta as well. So I've, I think she should be on a fact-finding mission and seeing if she's recognised out there or if she tells people that she should just drop what, where she works, what she works on in the conversation and see how many people go, no way. Uh Absolutely, absolutely, and um, uh, and just for a little bit of advice, if she's going out there, uh, they sell out there these um, lovely little um, confectionery things. They're kind of like um, uh, these little. Um, they're like, <laughs> they're what, what's the best way? They're kind of like powdery, yeah. like but they're like spheres, right? Uh, that are kind of a little bit like honeycomb. And they're covered nice. in uh, milk chocolate. Uh, so a biscuity base? It's sort of biscuit. It's a little bit biscuity, but it's not really biscuit, I would say. I'd say it's more like a honeycomb right. concoction. How thin, thick spirits. is the chocolate? Quite. Chocolate's quite thin. It's quite, quite thin. thin. I mean, take your fingernail in on a hot day and scrape it off like a, like a satsuma. Right. Can you remember what they're called? No, but I think they're no. local. Local project. Well, if you keep your eye out for them, maybe... Uh... Uh, I guess you're lovely it it's a family recipe, I get it. I, no, it's, it's a local thing, um, and, and I, I am led to believe that you can eat as many as you like before a ballet, a ballet contest and you'll be absolutely fine. That sounds amazing. Well, let's see. Good luck out there, Irene. Good let's luck, hope you can get some. Anyway, uh, I feel like we should just get on with some fan mail, because we <laughs> 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 oh no oh no um so what have you been a fan of this week Nathaniel? well for this week after almost a year of not doing it i decided to pick up on my uh uh brian de palma marathon that i started about a year ago and then when i got oh, post the 90s i went i sort of go I'll, I'll watch them later did everything up to uh uh, up to Mission Impossible, and I did Snake Eyes, and I, and I, I watched Mission to Mars, and I was like, I'll leave it for a bit. I love Brian Palmer, and I can't Snake Eyes or Mission to Mars. I mean, I would say it ended with Mission Impossible, right? I don't think I've got all the way through Snake Eyes ever. I don't. Th I don't even think I've seen all of it out of sequence over <laughs> the years. I think I've just avoided it, and Mission to Mars. Yeah, I I think what was the other one? Red Planet. Yeah, I th that was Red Planet had Val Kilmer in it, and Mission to Mars had Gary Sinise and Tim Robbins, right? That's right. That's the one. Um, yeah, I've seen the beginning. I don't know if I've seen much more. Um, it's weird, isn't it? Because you get Brian De Palma. I was thinking as soon as you mentioned that of Dario Argento, where his films are just stunning until 1983, and then they're all unwatchable. <laughs> and um, uh, and then you look at someone like Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, and I'm not a massive Spielberg fan, but you look at Martin Scorsese and Spielberg and they're still, you know, they're in rarities. You sort of take them for granted that they're mm. still able. And even Martin Scorsese can't get budgets for his films the same way well, that he used to. I was, so, I was very much of that opinion, but when I was looking at the, you know, I think Mission to Mars isn't really isn't very good. And I remember watching that De Palma doc and he was, and when you look at it, I just think he's actually been quite poorly served. So this week I watched uh, Femme Fatale for the first time. Who's in that? Is that uh, Antonio Banderas? Yeah, 
and Rebecca Romjin Stamos and Rachel McAdams. No, that's another one, which I thought was the same film, that's called something else similar. It's not Femme Fatale. Is it Black Dahlia? No, Black Dahlia I saw this week as well. Was that Brian De Palma? Brian De Palma. I've heard of all of these films. Yeah, right. Rachel McAdams is in one though, right? She is in one, but it's one I haven't seen yet. And it's, it's got a really similar... It's a film that I thought was the same film as Femme Fatale, but isn't. Um, right. uh, Snake Eyes, at the time, at the cinema, I remember being a bit meh about. When I watched it last year, I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, actually pretty good. In a way that a lot of those films from the late 90s actually compare very favourably to films of today. Like, all well, films, I think, are a bit worse. So, like, films that were kind of, like, okay in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, when I watch them now, I go, actually, they're sort of great. They sort of aged a lot better than modern films, I think. I think, my, I think 90s was a really great era for films. Hmm. And um, maybe not as quite as iconic. You, you had really iconic films. You had really good films in the 70s. Like, they were all good, right? <laughs> and then in the 80s, you had iconic films and rip-offs, right? Yeah. And in the 90s, you you tend to just, like, they just were like, we can make so much money off these movies. Let's just churn out these fucking juggernauts. And they're not all superhero films. They're not all based on TV shows and franchises. They're literally just like, let's just crank out a load of fucking bangers. And I think, you know, if you look at, like, late 90s, um, late 90s action cinema or late 90s uh, Nicolas Cage films, you know, and John Travolta, you had like a really good run of kind of, um, uh, you know, you had uh, Broken Arrow, The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, uh, and then um, there's more John Travolta stuff. And then in between, in the mix of all of that stuff, you kind of had Snake Eyes, and I think... And it was also marketed on the back of magazines and comics and stuff as like The Rock, uh, Con Air, Snake Eyes. And I think it's not really an action movie. And I think maybe that's a little bit of the misconception that Snake Eyes has got. Because if you'd have said that Brian De Palma has directed a movie uh, where Nicolas Cage, what does he do, solve a murder during... um, a hurricane at a casino while they're trying to pull off a heist. Yeah, that's what it is. You go, Brian De Palma did that, and he had a budget, and it was the late 90s, and it had Nicolas Cage in it. It sounds fucking phenomenal, but basically, when you put it against all of those sort of lowbrow movies, and Brian De Palma was making kind of like a big-budget Brian De- I guess it was his follow-up to Mission Impossible, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. I think as well, what you think of it is, because at that time, sort of from... You know, he did Kiss of Death, where he really sort of pumped up and he got huge. And then he did uh, The Rock. And then it felt from that he was kind of into the kind of action realm and made these big action movies. But you kind of forget that, you know, you know, he was like an actor before that. And Snake Eyes is probably closer to one of his other films. And it's a proper thriller. It works as a thriller. But not just an actor. He'd done... What? When did he do Leave in Las Vegas? 95? Was yeah, that the 95. same year as The Rock? Same year as yeah, The Rock. Yeah, same year as The Rock. And just before that, he'd done Honeymoon in Vegas and It Could Happen to You. So Nicolas Cage was like not just an actor, but he was doing kind of like um, 
not low budget, but like romantic comedies mm. with Jane Fonda and Sarah Jessica Parker. And uh, and he was in Trapped in Trap Paradise, which is that fucking terrible um, Dana <laughs> Christmas Carvey film. Christmas film. And um, yeah, he was doing that stuff. And so, and also, it, when you look at The Rock, it's just, he is the comic relief in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's the, like the nerdy. Comic I think relief. he's completely reinvented himself within a couple of films as being like an action star. And then he's in this film where he's like this kind of quite, not necessarily terribly likable guy who's cheating on his wife and is sort of a bit, he's like the main character, but the idea is he's, he's essentially like a dickhead. And, uh, but. Oh, and Snake Eyes. And Snake Eyes. I think that they called like anti-heroes. Yes. Yeah. And very much an anti-hero. But he's I think the, in or, it. Or he's, or he's the main character, but he's sort of a dickhead. And, you know, the Gary Sinise character is kind of uh, is presented as like being the sort of he's the good guy in this sort of film where he's not the lead, essentially, is how it kind of works. So he's like the the um, Nick Cage character isn't very I mean, he's quite likable, but he's sort of presented as being a bit of a bad guy. And yet, I think by the end of it, he's the sort of compared to everyone else. He's sort of the best guy when you realise that everyone in the film is kind of a bad guy, really. And actually, he's probably best placed to be, to actually have some morals and and save the day, essentially. Right. In a bad, in a bad world, I think it's, a, is it Atlantic City? I think it's set? Yeah. But it's almost like, I think the idea is that almost everyone there at some level is like essentially a bad guy who's out for themselves. And he's also a bit of a bad guy but he's got he's not a bad he's not a, he's not a bad guy is it a little bit like uh because there's a boxing match as well right mm. it's like oh it's all it's vegas and there's a hurricane it's not vegas though is it it's atlantic city i'm pretty is sure it, it must be salt lake city it's atlantic city i think and, it's atlantic um, city and it's, so it's a bit like cluedo right they're all trapped in this complex and it's like a whodunit yeah, but I think, you know, I think initially, famously, they changed the ending. I think the hurricane was meant to be a much bigger part of the plot than it ends up being. I think about half midway through the movie, they kind of go, forget about the hurricane. Forget about it. It doesn't matter. I think it's more like that. It goes a bit. Uh, it was meant to be one of the things that sort of drives the plot forward. But I think by the end of the movie, it's kind of a bit forgotten. But wasn't the end of the movie, wasn't wasn't the casino all meant to flood and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it like this huge budget finale? They didn't film it though, right? Uh, I think there's some effect shots, I think, that they filmed. But I think in the end they went, yeah, forget this. We're not doing that. It's too much. But I think that was the So I think the end was perhaps meant to have a bigger, higher octane, huge action thing where presumably the murder was going to be solved whilst you know, the casino is being destroyed by a tidal wave or something. It was that sort of, right. But in the end, they kind of simplify it. But Snake Eyes was like, it's, it's all right. You know, it was, it was kind of like, I like that. I enjoyed that. Um, Mission to Mars is a bit of a struggle. It's just not a very good movie. It feels dated. It feels much like it's from a much older era than it is. And it's weird that it's they done. made it at all. It feels like it's funny that this is that they spent so much money on this film. It's Don Cheadle in that one. Yeah, Don Cheadle, 
Gary Sinise again, uh, Tim Robbins, Connie Nielsen. Um, and it really is just not like it's, it's kind of quite, it's quite lame. It's very sort of American and very kind of, it's quite cheesy, I guess, is what you think of it as. But it's also trying to be a sort of 2001 type movie. And it isn't. It's kind of a bit sillier. Feels very mainstream. And that was a film that I think, I think that's the one that Gore Verbinski was originally meant to do it. And he left the project. And following that up, uh, the guy I think produced it, one of the guys at the studio said, uh, it's Touchstone who made it. And I think one of the guys who was running the studio at the time had worked in a Mission Impossible. And because it was seen that the Palmer was a big director again off the back of Mission Impossible, basically called him up and said, could you come and basically save this film? Because you're a big name director, you've been doing it for years. We need someone like you to come in and do it. Because this film is basically, it's going to die on its ass. We've really messed up. The director we had on it has left. And we need you to come on board and save this film. Now, apparently what happened is the Palmer does that, brings the film out. It flops really badly. And it almost feels like after that, you go, that was his last big film. And it's almost like his last big film feels like it's because he did someone a favor. Do you know what I mean? It's like if he just stuck to his guns, he was at that time quite a hot director again. And yet he, he sort of, someone calls in a favor. He goes, sure, I'll help you out. And then the movie after that is Femme Fatale, which again, I'd say I quite enjoyed, although I don't know if it's a good movie. It's a real departure. It's Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas and Rebecca Romjin Stamos. So, but, but what would you say that? But because I, I right. So there's, I, I think there's multiple ways of looking at it. Right, where where he did someone a favor by directing um, Mission to Mars, and then he got thrown under the bus because it wasn't a hit. Yeah, and there is that. But he, and so maybe they said, if you direct this, then we'll give you something even better. Yeah. So maybe that maybe that happened. Yes. But maybe it was just like if you direct this, you've got what 120 million budget. Yeah. So yeah, maybe it is like you're staying on top with doing this one. You're being employed as a top director. Yeah, but also he's got 120 million dollars to play with. Yeah. And it's like a science fiction, and he hasn't really done science fiction. So it's like, do you want to do this genre that you haven't got? But it's like this huge genre. It's ready to go. All you need to do is come in and bring some of your like, you know, diplomatisms and sort of slot all that in, and it's ready. It's ready. We've got it casts. We've got the budget. We've already started work on the special effects. The sets are being built. You know, do you want to just come in and do it? And I think that that would be very tempting, mm. especially if you're kind of like, you know, from that documentary, it feels like he'll make a film and then he's back to square one every time. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's got to start kind of like, so to get offered that, that's kind of like, oh, that's a couple of years work that I don't need to worry about. Yeah. And I guess I'm it, working on my pet projects. Yeah. So, and I guess it's, yeah, a couple of years working on something where it does feel again, like you're at the top of your game. You are an in-demand director in Hollywood at, at yeah. the biggest level. With an incredible cast at, mm. at that time, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. Gary Sinek was still sort of like riding off of Forrest Gump and Tim Robbins was still riding off of, you know, or was getting recognition for Shawshank Redemption. 
Don Cheadle, what year was it? This is 2000. So I guess it's post so, out of sight. So Don Cheadle and, and Boogie Nights. Mm. So I think it's kind of like, I think everyone is doing really well. I think that's good. I, th- I you know, I, I, I wouldn't feel too bad for Brian De Palma. No, but it just feels that when you have Femme Fatale, Femme Fatale is quite enjoyable, but it's, I watched it, it was on Amazon Prime, and I watched an hour of the film. And what I thought was great about it was it's kind of really visual and you're following the plot and you're going, oh, it's great. Because the first hour, I would say, is almost entirely in French. But some of the characters, like you've got English people popping, it's, it opens on the Cannes Film Festival and it's all kind of like a thriller set up of someone stealing these jewels, essentially, at the Cannes Film Festival from a starlet who's wearing all these jewels to a premiere. Um, and it's a real premiere that they're filming at of a real film. I sort of looked it up afterwards going, is this all real? So he sort of filmed it sort of covertly at the Cannes Film Festival around this film screening. And it's, you know, multi-camera, lots of long shots, all this sort of CCTV, but it's very De Palmery setting up this sort of jewel. And is it good? Is that, is that good the way they film it? Or it, feels, it... it feels good. But is it, it feels it like feel suddenly like, you're watching a low-budget movie. Does it feel like Borat? No, 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 not like that. It's not It's not filmed like... It's filmed classically, except it feels like suddenly you're not in Hollywood anymore. You're very aware that this isn't a studio movie. This is European. So it's suddenly it's the movie. It's like, oh, you're now getting your money from Europe. So That's when was it made? 2002, I think. I'll double-check that. Uh, and what was the budget? I don't know what the budget was, but it does feel like you're 2002. But it does feel like you're you're working on a yeah smaller budget. But he's still doing it. He's still doing like a proper De Palma movie. It feels very De Palmery. And about an hour in, I was like, this isn't right. When the dialogue kind of kicks in, it's really multi-European. So you've got some people talking French, some people talking English. Uh, uh, as soon as someone appears from somewhere else in Europe, they're speaking their own language. And you start about halfway through, you go, this is like watching like a Jallo or something, but that hasn't been dubbed. So you go, and then right. I re- then I had this thing like, this is wrong. This is wrong. So I started it from the beginning and watched with subtitles. And it's the only way you can plausibly watch it. So you go, oh, this dialogue that I was ignoring is important. And it's a whole other film. So I, start, I went, watched an hour of it, started again, watched it from the start. And then you've basically got to watch it with subtitles because everyone in it is basically speaking their own language. All of the dialogue is important. I was sort of ignoring anything that wasn't English because I wasn't watching it with subtitles. I had no idea that I was supposed to watch it with subtitles. Why not? It just started and it just just would feel like, maybe it's an Amazon Prime thing, that if it was a subtitled movie, the subtitles would appear naturally. But you've got to choose and go, yes, please, subtitles. But there there was enough kind of... English, English voices or there's enough English in it that you go right and when people are speaking you're kind of but also it's such a I mean one of the things that's clever about it it is really visual and I guess that's another sort of department thing that you're watching it and you're taking in the action because it's a you know you're watching a thriller and a heist and so I was going oh it's quite clever really you don't really need to know what anyone's saying so what it's only about is, what language is Antonio Banderas talking in? he's speaking in English uh, so when he appears, he's he's speaking English. 
um, in Cannes and there's a bit in Paris. It, uh, lots of people are talking in French unless they're English characters. But then you sort of realise it's obviously this weird pan-European film that must have fund- funding from lots of different countries. And you go, but at the end of it, it's quite, it's really silly. And I think that's its problem. It's silly. And if it was made, if it was one of the Palmer's movies from the 70s, like Suspicion or one of those things, it would be, not Suspicion, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, Obsession. Obsession. If it was something like that, you would just buy into how silly it is. But it's like he hasn't updated what you can get away with. So the sort of the, uh, the resolution of this story is like, that's crazy. Is it stylized like Suspicion? Because Suspicion plays like it's um, this super stylized dream. Yeah. This and, is... uh, and, and when you... What was that film that was set in 2020? Mm. Oh, yeah, what was that called? Um, I can't remember the name of it, yeah. but We, yeah. Watched, I, we watched it last yeah, year. Yeah, we did watch and, it last year. And that's kind of like... This would... I think every single film would play out great if they were all stylized like the exactly. 70s and you That's could what ignore it, it all yeah it, and this isn't like that it's like it hasn't got the budget to do that so the end of it just it's like because visually you're being told oh this could happen in real life do you know what i mean and by the yeah. end of it it's so wild that you go that's crazy but when you watch it with that in mind when you watch it as a De Palma film you kind of go it's actually really fun like if that was, if they had, if they were able to film that in a way that you could, could completely buy into it as something silly or over the top or a completely different tone to the what, what, what you're being shown, you go, that's sort of really enjoyable, but it doesn't quite work because it, it presents itself almost as being, because it's low budget, it feels realer and a bit more gritty than a lot of his other movies. Yeah. But the yeah. ending is so silly that you're like, Oh, that's crazy. How do you, how would you imagine? And you can even imagine like a script, like you can imagine Antonio Banderas getting it in 2002 going, what a Brian De Palma film, reading the script and going, oh, I can imagine exactly how this is going to be. But when you're making it, you're making a low budget version of this. And it just, the ending just, <coughs> it just like doesn't work at all. It just makes the whole thing seem silly. Because Snake Eyes, no, Mission to Mars, I'm sure I, have, you know, I haven't seen, but like uh, Snake Eyes is one of those films where he had a big budget and they built like this huge set that the camera could pass over. Isn't there like a shot in it where uh, the camera goes from room to room uh, from a bird's eye view? Mm. And there are like these long, um, you know, uh, sequences where there's no cuts and it's just the camera following people around. Like these. Um, casino hotels yeah. from room to room and it's kind of like yeah and it's stylized and it's like this big budget nicholas cage stylized brian de palma movie but if they didn't have the budget to build all the sets and to do it all you know like that and they were filming at the Cannes film festival during a real premiere for you know what i mean yeah like go yeah they're cutting corners and then eventually it's like this because he's so stylistic it oddly makes the the plots more believable. Yeah, totally. So it's it, it's it's selling you the it idea. All of, yeah, it's selling you this crazy idea. When you're watching something which is kind of looks too real because it's low budget, it's like you know 
you've stolen shots here and there and it's like it's yeah. like you, you know that's why you know Ken Loach doesn't make films with like like Tim Burton does you know it's that yeah. kind of it's just that when you watch it you go you can't do this this couldn't exist like this wouldn't happen in the real world or you're asked to believe such a crazy coincidences for this to to pay off yeah I think you've got to go all in for something like that yeah and then if it's if it's half and half it's just sort of like why would you why would you bother doing that uh that's a shame yeah that's a real um, shame it's half past we should, we should probably play a song well it's 32 minutes past but uh you're in another one of your streams of consciousness i'm afraid <laughs> i'm sorry to shake you out of the dream uh, but let's <laughs> let's play a song <sighs> you've been a real anti-hero today nathaniel let's go <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back. And we're back. Um, yeah. So, um, so we've gone back into the shady, sordid world of Brian De Palma movies. Um, I think Obsession is my favourite. Yeah, I, think I actually that, weirdly yeah. think you would like that Femme Fatale movie because you would understand the context of it. But it's a yeah. hard recommend to other people, yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, and is Antonio Banderas good in it? He's all right. Yeah, he's all right. I do like him. Um, yeah, but he's a very he's very much... Um, you don't really ever know which Antonio no. Banderas you're going to get. <laughs> he makes... I mean, sometimes he's amazing. And sometimes he's awful. And sometimes <laughs> he makes action movies. And sometimes he makes little dramas. And sometimes he's the comic relief. And sometimes he's a stone cold killer. And it's like he doesn't have a thing. If you hire Jason Statham, <laughs> you know what you're getting every time. Do you know what I mean? But Antonio Banderas is like, what? What? What is? What is? What is he doing? What is it? I love him, but like. You know what I mean? His performance mm. in Assassins is basically like Nicolas Cage's performance in Face Off. It's this huge, evil, kind of like cartoony bad guy. And he made it like the year after Desperado, where he's basically Clint Eastwood. It's kind of, yeah, I think he's magical. He's the best thing in um, Expendables 3. And we all know how highly i rate expendable <laughs> i think he's, well, he's tremendously charismatic i think or can be um he can also be absolute dog shit yeah <laughs> so, you're right i was back to yeah i was just thinking but not all the time um, <laughs> no it's so weird he's such a weird actor because you just assume that you know uh, maybe it's direction maybe it's all about direction yeah but, but he was great well i i was I had to find an old picture in my um uh, on my phone and I was going through it and I couldn't find the, the picture I was looking for. Uh, it was a picture of me meeting Lloyd Kaufman and the Toxic Avenger um, in the Prince Charles cinema, which was a really weird experience because um, I was upstairs watching a film at the Prince Charles cinema 
at night. I think it was like they used to do a thing on Saturday nights where there'd be a midnight screening, but it was like you didn't know what it was going to be until it started. Right. So you'd bought a ticket and you'd go in and at midnight they'd start playing a film and it would be like a lucky dip. Brilliant. And um, I, I think I watched something there and I went downstairs for a wee and um, Lloyd Kaufman was just stood in the lobby by himself with the Toxic Adventure. And I was like... <laughs> And I didn't know that there was a thing or whatever. <laughs> uh, he was just by himself with the Toxic Avenger holding a mop. And it was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and um, and I think that there was either like a screening or a Q&A that had just started or finished and he'd, he'd come out because he'd done his bit and they were screening the film or whatever. I don't know. I've got, I've got no idea why he was there. But I got a photo taken with him while I was looking for that. <laughs> While I was looking for that, I came across a photo of uh, that I took from the front row of the cinema uh, of the Leicester Square Odeon uh, for the premiere of Expendables 3. And the photo <laughs> is of Antonio Banderas, Wesley Snipes, Jason Statham and Sylvester Stallone. And they're all stood together on the stage. And I'm like six foot away. <laughs> and oh my God, it was absolutely insane. I remember when we got there, um, there was Harry Knowles from Ain't It Cool News was uh, in his wheelchair and he was, he was in Leicester Square going towards the cinema. And we had to go through the red carpet. Uh, and... Uh, we went up the red carpet and um, we sort of went past Jason Statham, who was just chatting on the red carpet. And then we went past and we were like, oh my God, that's Jason. And before we even had time to realise what was going on, we sort of almost walk into Antonio Banderas and we were like, oh, and as we're reeling from that, there's fucking Wesley Snipes and oh my god, Mr. Lowe. And you're like, oh god, oh god. <laughs> We're like, and all these cameras are going off. And it's just kind of just keep your head down, get through it. Because you know, it was like it was like uh something like a naked gun where you've accidentally walked through the wrong door and no, but it was yeah, <laughs> fucking up. And so yeah, we went to see it and they came out and um they're all just stood there. They don't really know what to say, I guess. Uh, hey, thanks for coming to see the movie. And then they just, uh, and then Antonio Banderas does this like three minute poem in Spanish. And then he ends with like this little flamenco move. Um, <laughs> of course he does. Like, the other three just all stop and watch him. Then <laughs> 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 you got Wesley Snipes and. Uh, Jason Statham and Stallone and they're all stood there and they just stop and they just watch him do this thing. He does it and then they go, okay, roll the movie. And then, they, you know, and then the film started and you come out of it and you go, Expendables 3 is the best film I've ever seen. <laughs> it's the best film I've ever seen. And um, I watched it again recently. And do you know what? It's very good. It's so okay. much better than the first two. It's not the best film I've ever seen. But I would argue it's probably, hmm, hmm, it might be, um, it might be Arnold Schwarzenegger's best film in the last 20 years. Wow. Well, yeah, actually, what are you going to compare it to? Yeah, so it's probably not. Really, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think so. 
it's it is good. It's probably uh, Kelsey Grammer's best film in the last. Uh... <laughs> it's a good movie. It's a great movie. Better than uh, uh, Up Periscope, whatever it's called. <laughs> um, Up Periscope was all right. Uh, no, I'm thinking of Mikhail's Navy. <laughs> Up Periscope was a poor man's Mikhail's Navy, right? I had a flashback the other day. Uh, so one morning, I guess it was a couple of, you know, I don't know what year it was. I remember it being a Friday morning and I got up and I was looking at my phone and I saw a thing that like really, uh, I, it was, so it was probably like nine, nine o'clock in the morning. I looked at my phone and I went, oh yeah, X-Men 3's out today. Maybe I'll go and see X-Men 3. And then saw like, it was one of those things where you make a split decision and it, like, yeah, I just woken up. I went, X-Men 3, yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe I'll go and see that. What time's that on? And you realise it was one really early, like 10 or 10.30. And I was like, I could make this. And I remember, like, just got dressed, left the house. And, you know, when you've... And then I got to the cinema and I went, got a ticket for X-Men 3, went inside. And it was only then that when the film was starting, I was going, oh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm really thought a lot about this film or anything it just felt like a great thing to do in the moment just right uh, just kind of um like very much like a split decision i'm gonna see this film and it was that thing that before you've really even woken up to be like seeing like uh kelsey grammar in his blue furry makeup <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of these things when I was watching it going, I don't know what's I going forgot, on. I forgot he was in it. Oh my god. Yeah. Walking around with his suit on. But he's basically Fucking still being hell. Frasier. He's still Frasier. He's still he's not doing his performance is the same. He's just because basically you know, like like that he's is a, the best that's the greatest casting of all time, isn't it? Get Kelsey Grammer from Frasier to play Frasier in blue makeup <laughs> as a furry. Dress him up. And you go, that's brilliant. That's going to be brilliant. And then you watch it and you go, why is it so shit? <laughs> How is it this bad? <laughs> yeah. It was such a weird shock to the system at like 10 in the morning. And I like, I, I think <laughs> I hadn't really woken up and I just bought like Is he in the whole film? Yeah, he's in is the he whole film. The whole, is he going to be in the whole film? <laughs> it's worse with Nicholas Holt though, right? Is that the <laughs> yeah. kid from About a Boy? Yeah. What? I like the idea that Nicholas Holt is going to grow up to look like Kelsey Grammer in a few years. But I think by the end, there's only about 10 years difference, isn't there, or something. So, like, well, I mean, he's going to have a tough 10 years ahead, isn't he? I think he's going to come out of it looking <laughs> oh. like Kelsey Grammer. God, right, yeah. yeah. So what did you make of X-Men 3? It was shit, wasn't it? It was shit, yeah. And it was just I'm the juggernaut, bitch. I'm the <laughs> yeah. juggernaut, bitch. Hey, dickhead, because he had a head like a dick. Um, <laughs> that is so bad. It was such a terrible film. How do they? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, but fucking hell. Um, Absolutely oh my bonkers God. film. Especially bonkers to see it at 10 in the morning or whatever. Of course, but, you know, like almost the exact same story, but for Jurassic Part 3, where I didn't... I, I think Jurassic Part 3 came out, what, in... 2001 or yes, maybe 2002 like that, yeah. it came out like it came out christmas 2000 uh, no it didn't it came out summer 2001 i think um or maybe maybe 2000 i think it was 2000 it doesn't matter nick i think it was 2001 right <laughs> and um there was absolutely no publicity for it yeah like none 
I just remember looking at the cinema times. Um, I come back from university for summer and I looked up the cinema times, not on the internet, like I'd have to go to like a newspaper or I'd have to, I think you used to have to phone up and they'd just tell you all of the films. And I looked it up and it was like Jurassic Park 3 and I was just like, Mum, do you want to go and see Jurassic Park 3? So we watched it in Watford. And it was, you know, I was a 20 year old man taking my mum out to the cinema on a Saturday lunchtime. But it's just like, it was really weird that, you know, they'd released like this huge sequel to yeah. this huge franchise. And like, there was no fanfare whatsoever. It was literally, you look in a newspaper, and you go, oh, fucking hell, Jurassic Park 3's out. Like, there was even more of a build up for something like Escape from LA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did feel like that. I remember seeing it and it, yeah, having, and when you watch it as well, it's not, it doesn't even feel like a big movie when you're watching it. You go, oh. And like, it's like the fact it's like 90 minutes or something. I think in hindsight, it really benefits from, from feeling like it's a Jurassic Park film and that's all it is. There's no, don't worry about it. You're going to get all oh, yeah, you're going to get everything you want out of it and it's fine and it's 90 minutes. But I think at the time thinking, it's so weird. It's like a proper in and out. It almost feels kind of slightly, it really leans into the sort of B-movie elements of like a it's dinosaur a park. Mm. There's no uh, ecological subplot that they've put in. Yeah. There's no huge set piece like the T-Rex in San Diego. I think The Lost World is one of the worst films I've ever seen. I hate it. So, I hate it so much. It is so relentlessly smug. It is just awful. Uh, I love Jurassic Park. But when you watch Jurassic Park now, it's like there's five people in it and none of the fences uh, are wide enough to make it out of the shot. Do you know what I mean? It's yes. like they've built a little bit of gate and stuck it in a field. And then sometimes they haven't even cropped it out with the camera. It's like you can just see the ends. It looks so, it's so weird. But Jurassic Park looks so sort of small and cheap when you look back at it. Um, and then The Lost World kind of, I guess, feels like more of like, I, don't, I just think the special effects haven't aged as well in The Lost World on top of everything else. And then when I saw Jurassic Park 3, it was like, oh, right, well, it's just, it's a B-movie. It's really short. There's dinosaurs in it. And you have some sort of like... It's, but again, it's it's not very good. I mean, I like I this is as a Jurassic Park fan. I, Jurassic Park is, you know, you can see it and you can see all of the flaws, and you can see all of. But it's a disaster movie, isn't it? It's mm. kind of. Um, so um, I, uh, I really like, I really like the franchise, even though they've made, what, five films now, and there's only one good one. Yeah. Although I did like the last one. I did like the last one. But Jurassic Park 3 is just this really weird film where it just everything about it feels cheap. There's more actors in it than the first one. There's bigger dinosaurs than the first one. They're, they're more ambitious than the first one in many ways. But at the same time, yeah, they're filming in water. They're doing scenes that they didn't... You know, they've got the pterodactyls. They've got scenes that they couldn't afford in the first two films that they've finally kind of like rolled over to the third one. The production of that is a really interesting film where, you know, um, uh, what's his face that directed it? Yeah, uh, uh, 
Oh God! Oh, is Captain America. Yeah, uh, Joe Johnson. Jo- yeah, Joe Johnson. Um, Joe Johnson was sort of like brought in last minute, and uh, the, the, he said that the script was rubbish, so they threw the script out. But they'd already built loads of sets, so he had to sort of like rewrite the entire film while they were filming, using the sets that they'd built and the. Uh, dinosaurs that they'd made and the cast and it was originally meant to be one thing and then they just rewrote it while they were making it William H Macy said it was an absolute fucking nightmare because they were getting new script pages every day their characters completely changed you know they were meant to be um, uh, you know soldiers of fortune and then um, they ended up being kind of like a married couple I don't know there's like there's loads of stuff on the internet about it but it's just really interesting that Joe Johnson came along and he just, you know, it was like a fixer-upper. That hasn't affected his career, you know? Yeah. Like, they, you know, same thing happened with Wolfman Yeah. a few years later. Like, um, uh, Hartley thinks thing? that might be his thing, though, right? That he's, like, it's almost that being a fixer is kind of his, uh, is his career. He's like safe pair of hands. It's like, well, yeah, it's safe, pair, safe pair of hands, but it's sort of like, he did. He fixed Jurassic Part Three. So when uh, was it, Mark Romanoff? Yes, yes. He left Wolfman for creative differences two weeks before they were meant to film, and Joe Johnson came along and he did all of his prep in two weeks, and they filmed it. And you know, throughout bits, they were rewriting it, and you know, and they go right. Well, we get the guy that fixed Jurassic Part Three. Okay, fine. And then they do Captain America and they go, well, what are we looking for? We want something exactly like the Rocketeer. Well, let's get the guy that... That was weird. Because John Favreau obviously invented the Marvel Universe with Iron Man. And then the next two films were Thor. Yeah. And Captain America. And with Thor, they were like, well, it's sort of Shakespearean. Let's get Kenneth Branagh to do it. And you go, No. <laughs> that's, that's terrible. That's a, because it, it's it, it's it's Shakespearean, but do you know what it really is. When you talk, when you say Shakespearean, what you mean is you mean relationships. It's all of these complicated relationships, and what that is is it's a soap opera, which is what Shakespeare was. Um, and what you really want is you want someone that can understand family dynamics, and can do huge action sequences and what and what um oh my god do you think that that's why Hugh Jackman is called Hugh Jackman because it sounds a little bit like huge action (laughs) if you want Hugh Jackman you need to watch huge action huge action huge action Hmm. This is something I'm going to work on in my head for a little bit. Um, Hugh Jackman. Um, so, um, yeah. So, but if you want Hugh Jackson, if you want Hugh Jackman sequences, then you don't want to get Kenneth Branagh, right? And then, yeah. And then they did the same thing with Captain America, which is we want something a bit like Rocketeer. We'll get the guy that directed the Rocketeer. Yeah, he hasn't made any huge hits, though, right? Don't you really want the Rocketeer? Wasn't a huge hit. Yeah. It retrospectively became kind of like fondly remembered, but it wasn't a huge hit at the time. I reckon, but I reckon he's a, he is also the guy who did Jurassic Park three and 
you know, the Wolfman. And so I guess he has got that. But, I, you know, and like all those films, I always think they're much better films than they have any reason to be. It's like Jurassic Park 3, very watchable. The Wolfman, really like it, despite people hating it. Um, uh, yeah. Rocketeer, love it. Captain America, possibly the best Marvel film. I just think it's like, uh, I just think he, like he, whatever he does, I'm sort of on board for it. It does feel like it, whatever he does, I do seem to like it. You know, he is. Well, Joe Johnson is one of those Spielberg light directors, yeah. isn't he? Where he's kind of like, he'll, he'll make it look a bit like a Spielberg film and he'll do all of the bits without it really being Spielberg. And if you, I guess that's what, I guess that's what he does. Um, yeah, but you're right. You're right. I like all of his films, really, mm. especially Wolfman. And um, Jurassic Park 3 is the only Jurassic Park sequel that I've watched and enjoyed multiple occasions. There you go. There you go. Right, so it's time for some fan mail. Um, I saw Air Force One, by the way, um, for the first oh, time yeah. from, beginning, from beginning to end. I haven't seen uh, that. I've seen, in, in, I've seen all of out. it. In, seen all of it in pieces but i haven't seen it all in one go watched it from beginning to end what did you think of it pathetic <laughs> so here's the fan mail here nick and that hope you are getting some better mail well that's up to you really isn't it henry o webster here nick and i hope you're getting some better mail i've been a fan of black summer series too netflix it's relentless, compulsive, and repulsive. Cleverly stitched together, zombie-based vignettes makes today's shit show of a world look remarkably tolerable. Also, have either of you seen Lake Mungo? Bye for now. Henry O. Webster. Well, I haven't seen Lake Mungo or Black Summer, I'm afraid, Henry, so I don't know how much use it can be. Nick? I haven't seen any of those. Have you seen any of the Fear Street stuff on Netflix? No, I'm not. Uh, I don't know. I saw it. I saw it uh, come up on its front page, and to me, it looked like a Netflix trying to do a rip off of Stranger Things. It looked like it was ripping off itself from the the poster. Oh, maybe uh, that didn't really occur to me. Or maybe it did. Uh, but there's three of them now, isn't there? I didn't really know what they were, and then everyone. Not I say everyone. I've just seen a couple of things online about it. But, um, yeah, it looks I? to be my sort of thing exactly, but I haven't watched it. Anyway, no, not seeing any of that. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel. And Natalie and Angus and Christopher. I started listening to the podcast Lacto October. Lacto Lactose Intolerant. <laughs> I started with Hugh Jackman. Lacto Lactose Intolerance with Hugh Jackson. I think I don't know if this is radio. <laughs> just to say i think today has been incredibly relaxed so far and what we should say is it's 29 degrees outside and i am i am fucking melting uh, you know no offense to my guest but the last thing i want to do is talk to them for an hour indoors so um outdoors that's fine but indoors forget about it anyway Hey, Nick and Nathaniel! And Natalie and Angus and Christopher. 
I started listening to the podcast Lactose Intolerant, and I'm in the final stretch. I'm about to start number 139, 25th of June 2021 wow. with that last from Star Trek. I didn't make it a note of the films you both recommended and ones you've said and, to avoid. And a, the ones you said to avoid. Apologies there, Chris. And now I have over a hundred to watch. Fucking hell, if we... Uh, I, without really trying to recommend films, I guess we've recommended films. Yeah. I have over a hundred to watch. Your enthusiasm for some films has made me give them a chance, such as Going My Way and Evil Dead. In my defense, I was seven or eight when Evil Dead came. How old do you think we fucking were? <laughs> for fuck's sake. Evil Dead came out in 1982, you fucking cunt. In my defense, I was seven or eight, which means that you're like, what, five? Five or six years older than me, a little bit less from Nathaniel, but there you go. That's uh, time. Uh, it might have been to separate when Evil Dead came out, and the poster made it look way too scary. It's a horror film. I've watched both, and they get five stars each. There you go. It's starting to sound less like an anti-hero. It's great listening to a podcast about films without the wanky pretentiousness. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it. My internet connection is unstable. I did film studies at uni and still get cold sweats thinking about having to write a 2,000-word essay on the first five minutes of Poltergeist as viewed as an introduction to the American nuclear family. That can really take the fun out of a film. That's never happened on Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Though, so, I've enjoyed listening to every episode. Love, Leanne. Well, that's nice, Leanne. Thank you. Thank you know you. what? That is one of the nicer bits. It of is. It's very have. nice. Uh, well, I'm glad that um, I'm glad that our uh, enthusiasm is, uh, has has been contagious. Um, I was going to say rubbed off on you, but you're not allowed to say that anymore. Um, so I'm glad we've recommended some stuff our guest is in the waiting room um that's fan club let's play a song <laughs> I, I was reading and talking at the same time sorry guys it wasn't my best bit of broadcasting um and you nathaniel didn't pick up the slack let's go <laughs> nick helm and nathaniel metcalf's fan club on foobar radio and we're back. We're back live. We're not live. We're as live. And um, uh, I'm. Um, and it's not Friday. It's Wednesday. I'm sorry. It's so hot. This has been one of the least low. Uh, this is the lowest energy show we've ever done. Um, so uh, my name's Nick. Uh, you join us now with Nathaniel Metcalf, and we're joined now with our special guest, Izzy City. Hello, Izzy City. How are you? Hello. I'm hot. I'm hot as well. And I've just had a samosa, which is a really weird choice of food in the heat. I I, I had a samosa last night. Um, <laughs> what what sort of samosa was it? It was a veggie samosa and it's quite yeah. spicy from sure. the cafe up the road. Yeah. Sure. Was it warm? Yeah, it was warm. Was yours? Uh, yeah, mine was, yes. Uh, and was how big was your samosa? Not that big, about... Smaller than, uh, smaller than my fist, I'd say. Slightly smaller than, smaller than fist. my fist. How big are your hands? Would you say you had big or small hands? Medium hands, for medium a, hands for a lady. 
I always think that I've got quite small hands for a man. And then I remember that scene in Young Guns where Emilio Estevez gets the handcuffs off because Billy the Kid had small hands. And then I remember I'm in good company. Yes. And if you ever get handcuffed, you could get them off really easily. Yes, by giving them hand jobs. So um, <laughs> here we are. I've just understood what you meant. Sorry. Um, oh, I thought he'd slip them off his hands because they weren't um, large enough to accommodate the handcuffs. I have not seen that film. That oh, no, a... that's what he does. That's what he does do oh, that. I see. Okay. That would be great was... in the film Young Gun, where they said, hey, I got out of my handcuffs. I mean, I did think, wow, I didn't think Young Gun was like that. But... That'd be brilliant. If they handcuff Billy the Kid, Emilio Estevez says Billy the Kid, and he slips his handcuffs off because he's got little hands, and he goes, uh, and wanks off all of the prison, the prison guards, and they say, Do "You know what?" Then he puts his handcuffs back on again, and they said, "That was some good wanking, Billy. Uh, you can go free." Yeah, that silence <laughs> is fan club. <laughs> um, no, what anyway, I was wondering is why he would put the handcuffs back on afterwards. Because he was, he hadn't thought it through. Okay, okay. Or it's almost. Kiefer Sutherland, and Kiefer Sutherland says, oh, you got out of prison. He goes, oh, well, you're able to slide your hands out because you're small hands. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's or fine. he goes, or Doc goes, how did you get out of prison, Billy? And he goes, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest hands in the West. Um, so, so here we go. Um, we're joined by our special guest, you're promoting your first novel that you've written, Jane is Trying, and it's out now, today, on Friday. Yes, I wish it had um, a scene like that in it. <laughs> well, this, it's your debut book, because there's always room for your, if you're a second Oh book. yeah, that's true. Yeah. What do you call the second book? What's the second one? Your sophomore. I guess, yeah. What do you Why call the second Edinburgh show? The di- I always think of the second Edinburgh show as the difficult... Difficult, difficult one. one. You've used up all your good material in the first, but this is my second book, and I, I, I think it's yeah, I think it's all right actually. I don't feel that second album thing with it, but maybe but it's, it's, it's a, my first novel. It's your first novel. It's yeah. another first rather than a second. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. is there any oh. elements to it which are autobiographical at all? Have you been able um, to use? Yeah, a little bit. Like the so it's about a woman who. Uh, is is engaged to this guy who and they're trying for a baby and then it turns out that he's been cheating on her and she's kind of scooped up with her parents and moves back to her hometown her sleepy hometown that's a little bit like Matlock and is in Derbyshire and at one point I, I said to um, Ellis my partner um oh I might set it in Yorkshire and he was like why just set it in Derbyshire then I was like yeah why am I trying to like there were enough similarities with me and what I already do. I didn't need to like set it a county further north for no reason. Um, yeah, there are some similarities, definitely. Yeah, and and some similarities to people I know, but hopefully I've disguised them enough. So why did you? But then also, but then also um, if you did set it somewhere aside from Matlock, then you'd have to use more imagination. Yeah, and exactly. Whereas... I don't want to do that. Well, this, I think that it's a per, you can you you take a reality and you add imagination yeah, onto them. I know what you mean. Yeah. Whereas if everything is made up, then it's kind of like oh god, it's like lying on top of a lie. Yeah, it's that's kind of true. Like, oh, I've got my lies yeah. mixed up. Yeah, I feel like that about sketch. You know, like if a sketch is about aliens trying to work 
a buggy, that's funny. But if it's about aliens... No, in space, then no. <laughs> you know what I mean. If you've got one surreal yes. element and one real element, it's fine. And if you've got two surreal yeah. elements, it kind of loses its anchorage. Yeah, exactly. You just don't buy into it as much. No, and it's not. Seeing... There's nothing that you can relate. Yeah, and Nick, you're actually right. You, you, there has to be elements that are from my imagination. So why change things that can be real? Because then it felt more rooted. And actually, it wasn't really set in Matlock. It was like an amal- ended up being an amalgamation of Matlock and a village that I know down the road from Matlock, and then any things that would be useful to add into it. But I used Matlock as a kind of jumping off point. And actually, that applies to a lot of the characters in it as well, I think, even when subconsciously there are kind of more minor characters in it, like the therapist, Monica, who's not a great therapist. She's not terrible, which doesn't really connect with Jane. And she is probably based on an amalgamation of like three people, but I've never really even thought it through. But I reckon any novelist, even people who write, even like Philip Pullman or something, I bet he's like... Oh, yeah, they're based on, like, Maggie from the post office. It's just that they're in the form of a, a deer. Are there any deers <laughs> in? Yeah, there are. His dog so, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. That's what I thought, because it does have, like, I'm about 100 pages in, and it's got a really good sense of, like, world building, that it does feel like it's it, it's a fictionalised place, but it's interesting when you write about a town, because it's like you must have some idea of the geography of it, right? Yeah, well, I sort of, yeah, again, the geography of it was kind of based on Matlock because I know that geography so well, and especially the park, and she's walking through the park and in the beginning, isn't she, when she's sort of describing how pissed off she is in a way about being back because I think she's quite snobby at the beginning about, I really wanted to make her, like, quite flawed um, Mm. and a bit arrogant and stuff at the beginning. It was really fun to do that. Yeah, and when she's walking back through the park and being like, oh, but I'm going to see people from school. um, That was, I imagined the park in Matlock. But then I actually did draw quite a detailed map for myself in the end of Foley because I, um, as it goes on, it it talks sort of a lot about a a few different places in it that she goes back to. And I thought it was quite important that I knew where they were, where they were, partly because I've got no sense of direction. Like if someone says, go... You know, like if people say, like, meet at the southwest of Green Park or something, I'm like, yeah. what the hell do you mean? How do you know where of, that of, is? Of Green, of Green Park in London. Well, any park. You know, like, doesn't happen so much more because we're older now, doesn't it? But you know when people used to have parties? Hey, guys, you know when people used to have, like, parties, yeah? Um, <laughs> like, sometimes they'd be like, guys, come and meet me in... If you, you know, near the statue, northwest of the park, and then people would just turn up and know where it was. And I'd be like, How do you know where northwest is? I'm terrible at that kind of stuff. No, no I'm terrible. Well, I'm terrible at, th- at that kind of stuff. And by that, I mean getting invited to parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have to do it now no, in London. I don't, but, like, but if you said, if you said the southwest of Green Park and you meant Green Park in London, I wouldn't mm. know where Southwest was. But you know yeah. what? I'd work it out, I suppose. Well, I suppose but then, we've got phones. Yeah. We've all got phones now. So you, so you just, uh, you'd, you'd phone someone, get them to meet you, you'd you'd wank them off, and then you'd ask them where <laughs> Southwest of Green Park would. Um, so here's, um, here's a question about, I'm just imagining Lou Diamond Phillips showing up and saying, what's going on, guys? Um <laughs> He's from Young Guns. So here's um here's a question about geography. Okay. How much how much of it is uh um like an not an in joke but insider info for people that know the area and are reading your book. 
how much of it is uh, you showing off about how much you know the area and how much of it is actually necessary for the plot? Oh, I don't think any of it is me showing off. It's literally, I drew the map so that I could go. We drove over the brow of the hill. We could see Kelly's house uh, down the road. Like even that for me, I was like, yes, it's down the hill on the map. Like, like, yeah, it wasn't me by being the geographical, uh, the layering of the earth in this And is area. that also for continuity? Yeah, and I sort of, actually, when I was writing it, I pictured it. I think in some ways it's quite, some scenes I could imagine as a film. I'm not saying that in a kind of, but that's the way the dialogue works, I think. And I sort of saw them visually as I was writing it. And so I think it was quite important for me to know where they were. Yeah. Yeah. How much of it is, I didn't mean showing off in terms of like arrogance, but I just meant like, when I'm writing, I sometimes don't know how much of the information is necessary. Oh, it's necessary, the yeah. And how much is just there so that I've got it straight in my head? Um, I know what you mean. Maybe there's an element of, of there being a bit so that I've got it straight in my head, but I think I stripped it back. I don't think I, I tend to write much about, like, th- what colour the sky was or what, the leaves were like or and I had to kind of make myself go all oh, right it's autumn I should write a paragraph saying but I where I think when I read books I kind of slightly skim those bits I'm like okay the sea's blue get on with it so I have you ever read it and actually it isn't Sorry. blue it can be lots of different colors but I don't really care it's whatever color know. the sky is right Isn't yeah it? yeah I think whatever so color. yeah I heard somebody say somebody said the other day you know that the sea um the sea wasn't green and they were like really like well was, of course the sea's not green it's blue and then i like the sea is famously green it's like i would say that that's what color people say that the sea is is that what it? color you think that, that people say the sea is i mean this would be quite a good survey i reckon if you got a kid to draw a picture of the sea it would be blue yeah i would do yes blue. but i think that that's because they haven't seen the sea that much okay whereas um... i think that i think that in literature, the sea has been green. Has yeah. Been. Well, green is much more of an alluring colour than grey. It, it, it rhymes with marine. Yeah, and that, yeah. Um, that wasn't I, what I was going to ask. I'm trying to think of something else that it rhymes with now. <laughs> um, setting marine. the scene. Is yes. green. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, no, I did, I did, I did make myself write in a bit more about the environment. So actually, I think that it's the opposite of what you say. I think I had to sort of make myself go put in these placeholders for the reader. Otherwise, it's just a continuous story with no kind of less shape than it needs. Have you have you read American Psycho? No, it's a film as well, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. No, I think I saw someone reading it on a tube once and thought I should read it, and that was about fifteen years ago, and then I forgot about it's, it. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a really good book. It's a really good book. It's a really good film. It's a really good book, but it's very violent. Yeah, I, know, I think that's what uh, put me off. I I knew it to be violent. But sometimes you kind of like go, "Well, it's a book. Well, it doesn't really matter." Do you know what I mean? It's not like you can see it. Mm. But, oh, he's very good at describing stuff. It's disgusting. But that's but why books are so good, isn't it? Every, but every other chapter, he'll go into sort of, like, I can't, 
interview is he when you're looking at me like that, Nathaniel? Um, <laughs> he, he looks like he's in absolute disgust with me. Like, how bad is this interview going? Um, <laughs> my, my, I've just blocked you out. Um, my every every other chapter in American Psycho is this very sort of like analytical um, breakdown of like a Phil Collins album or a Whitney Houston album, and. Um, I just found that I would skip those. Mm. Yeah, I, I think just got, they just yeah. bored me. What was? What do you think the point of that was to break up the the action? I think it's because he's because he is um, a, he's, I know he's called it a psycho, but he's like a sociopath. And it's where, in his voice, is it? So it's him. It's in his voice. Down. Okay. He's, yeah. Yeah. It's like breaking down what's so good about the Huey Lewis album four. And um, although that might be in the film and they couldn't get the rights to the Phil Collins album or whatever it is, but he'll break down what's so great about it. And then the next chapter, it, it, it's just, it, I can't remember if it's first hand or what, but like, um, but first person, but then there'll be like this very graphic account of him murdering a, a homeless person. And then it's just kind of like, so he puts the same sort of like level of detail in something like Phil Collins as he will do like murdering someone. And yeah. it's kind of like, it paints this picture of this sort of... But once you've read a couple of those chapters, you can skip them. Yeah, yeah. Do you have, like, um, an editor or maybe um, Ellis, but do you have someone that reads your books while you're writing and then says you don't need that or more of that, please? Yes, I had an editor who read about um, 20,000 words and then we had a meeting and then I then I did the first draft then off the back of that. And then it was quite daunting sending it to her and waiting for notes, which I got in so what, just after the first lockdown started. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So we had a filmmaker on the other week and we talked to them about the process that um, they went through in order to get their film made. So how, what was the process you went through in order to get your book made? You had an idea for a book. You'd already worked with a publisher. You got in contact with them. What's this 20,000 words that you're talking about? Is that not the book? So go for it. Okay, well, I did my uh, radio show and my radio series on Radio 4 and then I had a meeting with Orion years ago and they said, have you thought about writing a book? And I said, yes, but I don't know what I'd write. And then I thought I'd write a memoir. And then they, I was really lucky and they gave me a two book deal. So I did the memoir <clears throat> and then that came out and then I had a meeting with my then editor who's who left since and she said have you thought about writing a novel and I was like I have but I don't know if I dare and then I went away and thought about it then I had another kid um so that then I sort of didn't do anything for a little while and then I started to write an idea for a novel which didn't turn out to be what the novel is um which was about it's still about a woman going home to a small town but her dad was dying and she was kind of living a life that was like the opposite to this kind of very clinical existence going to visit him in hospital and stuff so she was like sexting people and having threesomes and stuff and um and then she got pregnant and then I wrote probably about five or six thousand words of that and I didn't it didn't feel right so I was like I want it to be different then Jane had a kid in it a toddler which I had at the time so I thought yeah this will this will be right. She's got away from her cheating boyfriend, which is what happens in the actual book that's been published. Um, but she's pregnant 
Uh, sorry, but she's had the baby. It's about two and she's got to be back in with her parents. Possibly her dad's dying. And then the kid was so annoying. So I tried to make this kid lovable and like a, like a normal kid, lovable at times, annoying at times, a human being. But overall, I found reading it horrible. I just, I, I just wasn't interested in knowing about Jane's life or, or the kid. So then I thought, right, I don't want her to have a kid. I want her to be trying for a baby. And then at that point, my editor had left because it was like years later. Um, so I didn't have an editor because I, I was just, everything was kind of, I hadn't done any work on it essentially and she'd gone. I still had the contract with them, but I wasn't, hadn't been assigned anyone yet. So then I did this 20,000 or 30,000 words with the idea, which has ended up being the book. But my literary agent said, look, we'll give it to them. But if they don't like it, they could just cancel the contract because it's been quite a while. And, you know, the first editor's left. So then we'd have to take it round to other publishers and stuff. So I was like, I just really hope they like it. And then luckily they did. But there was a bit where I was like, in a way, looking back, it was good because no one was on my back because it had I'd kind of missed my deadline and had a child. So it gave me the freedom to experiment doing those different things and going, should she have a baby? No, I don't like that. Should her dad be dying? No, that doesn't feel right. Although because my dad died nearly 10 years ago, I would like to write about that in some way, but it wasn't right for this book for whatever reason at this time. So then it gave me actually freedom without anyone being on my back to go, this is what I'd like to write. And then... Um, that ex then expanded into the book. So then they gave me notes on those 30,000 words. Then I went away and did the first draft after that. That's and there were quite quite a lot of changes we made, actually, because I had a treatment then as well. And we sort of tweaked it, not fundamentally, but yeah, there were there were some quite big changes. I was just thinking that the, the pressure of someone saying, can you write a novel? And it was interesting you said that, like, not knowing if you had the confidence to say, yeah, I can. Whereas I feel like it's a huge thing. You know, how do you do it? But it's almost like you've had three or four goes and then gone, yeah, I feel oh, like actually. That too. I... I think it was quite good that they didn't say, do it, do the first draft within a year. She was good. She was like, okay, go and think about it. And in a way, perhaps her leaving was good be, be, only because she was lovely, but I only had one meeting with her, but she was lovely. But it gave me just the room because no one was kind of assigned me because I hadn't done anything to to kind of work out what I wanted to do and, I think it it sometimes takes time. And yeah, I think you're right. I think I often just go, all right, I'll give it a go. And then I did read two books about how to write a novel. And I was very conscious at first as well that it was a novel. Mm. And actually, I forgot this. The very first 30,000 words or however long it was that I did, I think it was probably more like 20,000 I sent them when I was happy with the storyline, i.e. it was someone going home whose boyfriend had cheated on her she didn't have a baby she wasn't pregnant my literary agent who is always honest read it and said it's not great it doesn't sound like you it sounds like you are writing a novel and we'd had a meeting before when he said don't fall into the trap of thinking I'm writing a novel I've got to write like a writer and I was like oh I won't I won't went away and read two books about how to write a novel which were great and then was like right stop reading books about how to write a novel just do it and then he was absolutely right. And it was really hard to hear. Um, and I went away and was like, he's right. Um, it, it, I don't know what it was. It was like I was sort of self-conscious in some way. So then I went kind of back to the beginning and thought, just do it in the way that you would do it. And yeah. So 
so um, just backpedaling a little bit. Uh, what can would I just you say ask, can if... you hear Ellis? Can you hear Ellis listening to a podcast in the background? No. So I can turn to Tony. No. Okay. Fine. Where is he? Is he literally right next to you? No, no, he's putting clothes <laughs> away. He loves putting clothes away and he listens to him, his own podcasts while he's oh, doing wow. it. So, yeah. He can come out here. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> Sorry, Nick, go on. What, is, what would you say the difference between a memoir and an autobiography is? I feel like, for me, an autobiography is like Freddie Flintoff's, like, it's like, I'm thinking from the consumer's point of view, like say, right, I really love Tom Waits. Uh, I would read an autobiography of Tom Waits because I'd love to, I'm very interested in his, in kind of like every aspect of his life and how he, how he, his story, his career story and his personal story. I feel like an autobiography probably is for fans of the person it's about. Whereas I feel like memoir, a memoir is slightly more poetic in the sense that it could be in the form of essays. I'm thinking about Katie Wick's memoir, which I've just read, Delicacy, which is brilliant. Mm. It's fantastic. And it's like in the form of, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 chapters, which all are about cake in some way. So it's an experience or an element of her life, perhaps, that has a tiny, maybe tiny bit in it to do with cake. And uh, that feels more fluid and slightly looser than an autobiography, which I feel if you can ghostwrite an autobiography, which you can, um, you can, I don't think you could ghostwrite a memoir. I, f- I feel like, sure. yeah. Have you ever read Cash by Johnny Cash? No. That's a very, that's good. He's like on a bus, he's like on a tour bus. And it will be like, oh, I'm looking out the window and I'm reminded of June. And oh, I remember how we met. And it's like that, where it's not like, I was born on August the 15th, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's, uh, so I guess, and, and like you say, it's like a, it's like a collection of um, essays or, or like Katie's book, I guess, it's like filtered through um, a prism of you know a a subject which is cake you know where it's kind of i always wanted to write something that's kind of uh this is like an auto i never thought of memoir but this is an autobiography but it's from the point of view of this is how i feel about steak and so then yeah. you're a chapter on steak and through talking about steak you get to know the writer yeah but uh, or it's like, uh, I think it was Ways of Seeing was a book that I read at university, which was kind of like, and here's a book about wrestling. Uh, now, here's, here's a chapter on wrestling. And through the wrestling, you would sort of like learn about the um, the person that's writing it. That's what you um, want to do, isn't it? It's almost like small talk. It's manageable. Is, is, yeah. Small you know, talk is write, designed. But I can write a chapter on wrestling but I don't know if I can write a whole book on me, you know? Yeah, but you would be writing I could about easily you, write you? a book on me. Of I course could you could. But I think the wrestling is far more interesting than someone. I don't really like books that you open and go, I was born in Tennessee and blah, blah, blah. It's like, at least if you're going to have everything in it, start from the present day and then throw those memories in when they're valid rather than just being like mm-hmm. starting at the beginning. And at the end of Cash you get like a whole entire portrait and maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I just remembered I'd read Cash by Johnny Cash and I'd, rem- and I'd read 
golf monster by Alice Cooper at about the same time. And I'm a huge Alice Cooper fan. And Golf Monster is one of the worst books I've ever read. And he's sort of like, he's, he's just retelling all of the anecdotes he's done on talk shows for the last 50 years. And so he's just glancing over them and you don't get any extra depth, which you'd expect if he was actually writing about his life. It's like he does all of the greatest hits and then he talks about golf. Whereas Johnny Cash is kind of like, it's not necessarily in chronological order, but he'll really go into like a period of his life. And at the end of it, you feel like you've got a real portrait of who he is without it necessarily being a blow by blow um, kind of retelling of his life, which yeah. I think is great. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's my second question. Okay. Um, the memoir and autobiography, that's what I asked you. And now I'm going to, what is your, what's the difference that have you found in your voice because uh, you were talking about like not wanting to sound like you're writing a novel what's the difference in your voice from you writing a memoir and you writing a piece of fiction um i don't know if there is a difference i think it that what was what i think that the problem with the first draft that sounded like i'm writing a novel was because i was stifling my natural voice and um, whereas I never had that problem with the memoir because there were bits of it I'd done on stage and I I didn't feel that pressure that I felt when I got the, the kind of the um idea to write a novel uh, for some reason it was felt like a natural extension of stand-up and I had cartoons in it and there was sheet music in the back of the memoir and it felt kind of like quite free and like I could yeah kind of go off at tangents and stuff so I think essentially it's the voice that we all have as stand-ups you know like when you do gigs it takes you a bit of time to find your voice or a lot of time and then I think it ke keeps mm -hmm. going you sort of find it it's like 80% and then you think you've got it and then I think a few years later you're like oh this feels even more like my voice as it were um I don't feel like I've had to go through that process uh, t with the books because I think I'm really lucky that with stand-up, I learn what I want to talk about and t lots of lessons like uh, to be specific and things and um, I suppose have sharper my instincts about knowing whether something's funny or not because the weird thing about the book is that you can't test any of it out and we're used to trying stuff out live, aren't we? Like sometimes almost immediately after we've thought of it. And at the very least, that ultimately it's being written to be performed life, live and it's different. Whereas with the book, it's being written to be read. Um, I never listen to audio books because I, I prefer to read the words with my eyes. Um, and um, I, I find it hard to concentrate on audio books. I know obviously some people can't read and I think they're a brilliant invention. Um but I, yeah, I, I, I think a book is written to be read or listened to at the very least in a different way. So I was glad that I did it this way round and that I'd spent years on stage, which sounds a bit weird because I think it is a different discipline, but I think I've learnt so much stuff about how to trust your instincts. Because essentially mm -hmm. as stand-ups, we are still writers and seems you know because the finished product is is live 
Um, and even if it's a DVD or a recording or a radio show or a podcast, it was initially a, a kind of a live thing in front of an audience. I think we were always thinking about the audience. Um, I think I was glad that I did it that way around because it is a bit weird. Like when I wrote, even though I'd had that feedback on those initial words um, from my editor, when I went away and wrote the first draft, which was 77,000 words, then went, no, sorry, it was 88,000 words. Then it went down to 71 with the second draft. So I cut quite a lot from the first draft to the second draft. Um, going from like that, that sort of reasonably small amount of words to the 88 for the first draft, I was sort of at times going, gosh, you know, is this... A, pile of shit like you know because it's so long just you on your own you didn't show it to anyone um but i think because of being a stand-up i was able to trust my instincts a bit at least with the jokes and go i think that reads all right it might need tweaking but yeah i think you're right but i think you well, it was one of the things i was thinking that it does have you've got a very defined comic voice and it might be because i know you and i can picture you reading it but it does feel like you you certainly write in a style but as do lots of people it's that way that people talk about you know when you watch a woody allen film if you watch one for two minutes in the middle of one you would probably go this is a woody allen film. yeah you would because you just know yeah. like it's got that sort of thing so there's quite a richness to it and it mm. does feel like that's what that's what at the start what it feels almost that even though you know it's a novel it feels like you're drawing from your universe and it's sort of funny when you think of like when when you're talking earlier about that it's like a fictional town but you almost think you could have other books set in this town because it feels like you've got quite a do you know what i mean it's, I, i'm sort of struggling to think what i mean but it's almost that you've got you could do that again you could almost create an entire town and you could do another book with someone else who lives there because oh, it's got thanks. quite a nice yeah maybe i'll think about that actually yeah I always think that when you create a town that's sort of based on something, it always seems like, oh, it's almost like your universe. It's like it's yeah. like it's like your Marvel comics. You can you can sort of have them all interacting because it's or got Stephen quite King. Nice... Or Stephen King, yeah. Or Late yes, Wobegun as well, I suppose. Have you ever listened to Late Wobegun? No, I don't know that. Oh, I think you'd like it. Um it's uh it's a fictional town called um yeah, Lake Lake Wobegun. Like Wobegon, it's American or Canadian, but yeah, it's a guy. It's monologue essentially in front of an audience, and they're all set in this small town, and it's about kind of small town life and kind of funny and heartbreaking at the same time. Um, yeah, um, I I think that too. Like when I wrote my radio series, which was based on my Adam show, so it was set in Matlock that show, kind of, and it was like with fictional characters that were actually really based on real characters. Um, again real people again but like that artistic license i suppose uh oh the other thing is i think the difference between memoirs and autobiography i think you people tend to be more factually correct in an autobiography whereas with memoirs there's a bit of poetic license as well mm -hmm. anyway um yeah like when i went to do my radio series which was um lots of stories from um that had to be from the same town the first series was set in matlock and there were stories that i made up for that and kind of made up characters but they were all i imagined them all in matlock and i imagined them all in in the supermarket and everything then for the second series i thought why don't i set it in elephant and castle in south london because that's where i live and you know i set everything in matlock i'm always going on about matlock why don't i set it in my local community and i tried and i just couldn't do it and it was really interesting and 
there was a guy that I used to always speak to near, near the tube who sold coffee and we had chats every morning and I was like, could there be a character based on him? Yeah, that'd be good. And could, and I just couldn't, it didn't feel like I had the right to write about mm-hmm. these characters, even though they didn't exist. Whereas somehow when it was set in, so I ended up sitting series two in Matlock as well and it was much better because of that. And it was like, that's really interesting. It's like when I set things in Matlock stroke, a place like Matlock that has elements of Matlock in it, it's almost like, and I don't know if you guys find this as well, like when you're thinking about your hometown and you're writing stuff, it's almost like you know it so well and you kind of have that relationship with it growing up where you're like bored of it or you love it and you have fallings out with your mates, you fall in love, you get your heart broken. The, the terrain is so familiar to you that you feel able to let your imagination run free because it's coming from such a kind of secure place. Yeah, no, I think so, yeah, because you... you... It's infallible because you know it so well, or something. You, I guess that you goes back to, to that goes back to what I was saying earlier about kind of um, showing off about how much you know about. You know, I've 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 told stories on stage, and in my head, as I'm telling them, they're so vivid, and then maybe a couple of years later, I'll hear a recording of it, or I'll watch something back, and I'll go, I'm barely talking in full sentences. It's so shorthand. That you know, you couldn't picture the high street that I was walking down when somebody shouted at me in the street, you know. But in my head, when I'm telling it, I can visualize it all. Yeah. Um, it, when you're writing, I, and also, the, I, I mean, my show's always overrun, but I always try really hard not to overrun. Um, so I'm always editing. So I'm kind of like skipping over bits that I don't think are important. It, do you find that when you're writing um, a, a book, you have the luxury of really diving into stuff that you don't really have time for on stage or do you find that your stage work has uh has drilled into you to be concise and uh, and short no i one element i really loved about it was having the time to um i was quite strict with myself in terms of not going off at tangents because i think with my first book it was different because it was about me. I could do two pages about how much I loved Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine when I was like 14, 15 and gigs and and stuff. Whereas with this, it felt like I had like a duty to tell the story more, I suppose. But within that remit that I could, you know, you go quite far into Jane's head and she's quite an anxious person and you sort of go she's quite honest with the reader and I really enjoyed doing that. And I really enjoyed kind of her looking back towards the beginning of her relationship with Jonathan and talking about how they got together. And as long as it felt um, relevant to the story and the plot, I left it in at least for the first draft. Um, And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed, not only having the freedom to um, sort of relish those moments because it's a longer form of storytelling than stages but also because there isn't the pressure for it to be funny throughout whereas in a stand-up gig you can have those moments that are are serious can't you but you have to earn them and um, even when they're there you either want to pay off or you want them to be there for a reason and you you, they're kind of very structured I think Uh, Yeah. yeah But I also find, like, on stage in a, in a stand-up show, I like not being funny during uh, stand-up. 
which is my excuse. Um, but, no, but I know what I, you mean. I think that's because of the stage of your career that you're at and you can play with the audience in that way and you've earned the right to do that, if that makes sense. But if it yeah, was your but, first Edinburgh show, you sure. probably wouldn't. You'd be like, shit, I haven't had a laugh for two minutes. Oh, my God, oh, my God. Yes, but I also feel like because you're on stage and you're in, in a comedy show, you sometimes, and I think I've done this more, more I... I I look back on shows that I've done because they're live shows in front of an audience and I've said something that is true, but the truth isn't particularly convenient for the story I'm yeah. telling on stage. So I've tweaked it and I've actually amalgamated some things and then it becomes kind of like, it's a version of a truth. And then you kind of like go, well, there's no punchline. It was just a nice story. So then you invent something to sell it so that it justifies the fact. And then you end up saying something that's true, but cheapening it later to give it, you know, um, to to give it worthiness to be on a a stage as part of a stand-up show. I remember I said something that was very personal and very true a couple of shows ago, and then I cheapened it with this punchline at the end. And it's gone, at the time it worked. Because you're going, fine, they're laughing. I can get off stage. But when you look back on it, you kind of like go, it really cheapened that. And maybe there was like a better way of kind of, a more truthful way of doing it. And I think maybe novels are that way of doing it. Yeah. But, what's um, your what's yeah. your kind of thoughts about stand-up now? Are you, are you... Well, I like it, definitely. <laughs> you, mean, you mean our guest, don't you? Yeah, yeah right. okay, sure. Um, I I did I went back I stopped after I had um, I stopped I sort of had a break from about 2017 maybe just because the Betty was really young and then I had another baby I got pregnant again quite soon after that then I had him and I was like when I had Betty I didn't really stop working at all and that was a bit of a mistake because I got like ill with this like migraine vertigo thing and it was I think my body just going stop running around and trying to do everything and spend loads of time with the kid and you know so I was really careful when I had um Stefan to uh, to actually sort of like take maternity leave and stuff which is harder when you're self-employed because you know um but I did take a bit of time off and like scale things down a bit so then I like then I was like right it's my big comeback I'm gonna go and then I was like oh my god first of all I looked at all my old material and I was like I don't want to do this it feels really inauthentic because it, it it's also about stuff that I don't really kind of not necessarily don't think now but it just doesn't excite me so um I wrote some new stuff and then I did about two or three gigs with a mixture of old and new stuff but enough new stuff to feel like I sometimes think it's a little bit like uh when you make sourdough my mum says you have to have like a a, whatever sourdough is made of the starter the sourdough starter you've got to have like a tiny grain of starter and that kind of infuses the whole bread with this good stuff that makes it into sourdough. I sort of sometimes feel like, like about new material um, when you're in flux. You only have to have like a little bit in a set and it kind of shines a new light on the whole set because you're like, oh, I've got this new bit I'm doing and somehow it energises it all. So it felt okay. I did about three gigs. I really enjoyed it. I was really nervous, but um, I was really buzzing. It was like um, I'd started again from, you know, and then um, COVID happened and I was like, ah, okay, so I 
did Zoom gigs like we all did and it was a bit weird, wasn't it? Some of them were all right and some of them were, were odd. Um, and then I, in the interim, I've done bits and bobs and I have enjoyed it. I feel like now I've probably got a new 10 minutes um, and I I think once, um, once sort of the book's done and I've done like all the um, stuff for that, I'm gonna have to think about what to do next whether to I feel like I'm either gonna try and write another book or like maybe a young adult book or write a new show um because I do miss I do miss being on stage but it's weird isn't it you sometimes only need a small break and it is like you've never done it and then I think once you do it it's like it's two fine it's like weeks, muscle memory two but, weeks mm. I two know that and then, and then I'm like yeah. oh god how I can't, how did I even do it in the first place I know and yes, I do think that. And then how long do you think it takes to, because I felt like that first gig that I did back when I'd had years off, which was up the creek, it was like my first ever gig. It was like, I, I was like on, I felt like there was so much adrenaline coursing around my body. I was like, I felt like an open spot. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm doing this. And then I reckon I'd done three and I was like, I feel like I'm getting back into it. I feel like I had one where I didn't feel relaxed at all. And I was just thinking about what I was saying and it was, I, I, I didn't like it. I had the Up the Creek one was really lovely. Then I had one that was in the middle, but then I was like, okay, I feel like I'm, I feel like I need about another sort of three or four weeks and I'd be able to sort of improvise and I'd be back. Yeah. I think it is a small amount you'd ever need to get, like, it's weird. I think there is something that you're just tapping into something. Yeah, I think it's all, it is. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Mm. Like, Nick, like you were saying about cheapening a story and and stuff, I think it's, again, because you've got higher standards now. Like, if I think of things that I did at the beginning, things that I've said about my family and stuff on stage when I was starting out, where I was just like, I don't know what I was doing. It was like I was just so desperate to get a laugh. Like, yeah. and now, of course, I'd go, I can't believe I said that. But, yeah. Yeah. But also, it's like, it's like it's, they're all sort of, for me, nautical uh, similes and metaphors, where, like, when I'm on stage, I feel like I'm in a dive, like a Victorian diving costume, where I can't hear and I can't see and I can't hear my own voice. It all feels muffled and I can hear my heart beating in my ears. And it's all just sort of like, and I'll come off stage and I'll be like, I, I don't know what's just happened. I don't know. I don't know what happened. And then also you, when you're on stage, you're sort of like just grabbing for something to keep you afloat. Yeah. And it might be like, you know, uh, calling your dad a wanker or something like that. And you go, well, that got me through that moment. And then you come yeah. off and you go like, what am I doing? And what am I saying? And I think that the time and experience that you put into doing stand up and being a stand up comedian helps you deal in the moment better where you're not just flailing around on stage, just trying to... And I think that, I don't know, this is a different conversation now, isn't it? But, like, like I think I think if you don't learn anything from that, then you end up being one of those comedians that is constantly just flailing around, saying the most extreme thing that you, that you can to get a laugh and to get through it. And if you don't go that route, and some people are very successful seemingly doing that, don't do that route you sort of mellow a little bit and you become like more measured and thoughtful and then you become like more in control of you know 
uh, where the river bends in your story, you know, and yeah. you can kind of you can control it a little bit better, or at least ride it a bit better. Um, yeah. I it just you know I think we're talking about you know your your stand up, but it's like none of us have done stand up in such a long time properly. I'm very no, but I mean in a way maybe na- maybe now is the time to look at the theoretical side of it which i think is very interesting and actually i think nat we we do tap into when you have a great gig and you especially i think when you improvise a bit or you do a bit of material that you know very well and you find a new bit in it or you do a, a new line that just comes to you in the moment i do sometimes feel like i'm tapping into something that is higher than me if that doesn't sound too like it feels like it is so amazing and it does feel like some you're channeling something and then i think conversely when you die you feel so alone you feel less less than human but that but that experience of making something up on the spot and it coming out of your mouth and working that is the same experience that the, your audience have where they think you're making it up on the spot. It's a, it's right. like a rare moment. Yeah. It's a rare moment where you get to enjoy your act as much as your audience does. Yeah, that's true because you're doing the thing that they think you're doing all along. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've just thought of that. I'm a fucking genius. Yeah, you are, mate. <laughs> that's great. So if nothing else, if nothing else out of this hour, we've got that. that that's brilliant. <laughs> Actually, here's, um, here's just one because we've we've only got like a couple know, more minutes, and then we've got to play again. This hour, the first hour was dragged like a fucker, but the second, <laughs> this this hour has been great. Um, in terms of like planning, like so, do you like go right? I've got to write twenty one chapters, and this is what happens in all of the chapters. Um, I had a treatment I had, but it wasn't very detailed. I just had a sort of main bullet points, about 10 bullet points. And then I knew at the end that I wanted her to have changed in some way, but I, it wasn't very clear when I started writing it in quite what way, but I sort of knew the shape of it, if that makes sense. And then I did slightly change things as I went along, but not, not massively. The fundamentals remain the same. And I just kept writing until it was finished basically but I made myself do a thousand words a day and I really tried to make myself not read over what I'd written the previous day which is so tempting because then you I think the problem when I used to do that is I'd end up with a essentially sort of second draft of the previous writing and then a first draft of and you just waste so much time um so you yeah. get all the way to the end and then you come back and then you rewrite it all well yeah i got all the way to the end and sent it to my editor she came back with notes and then i think that time that i had while she was reading it was good because it let everything percolate and um i listened to um nell frizzell's interview with you guys and i thought it was oh. really it was great and I, I thought it was really in full of really interesting stuff and nat what you said about things I really agree that things percolate and I think you, you you both said it like you know when you think of an idea and then and Nick said you park it didn't you mm. you park it and then it sort of comes to life of its own accord and that you said that like essentially your, your subconscious will solve quite a lot of problems for you if you yeah and I felt like when I was waiting for the notes from my editor 
um, that that happened to me. So by the time she came back with the notes, I'd, I'd sort of solved quite a few problems without realising it in the meantime, without thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was that was good. I believe yeah. in it as a process, but I never believe it'll actually work. Do you know what? It, it <laughs> yeah. feels like buying into some faith. So you go, I believe, because yes. it's happened so many times before, if you just let it cook, it'll cook. Yeah. And yet, but if I have to rely on it, I, I lost all faith in the I, it as yeah, a process. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, I totally I can't, know what I can't rely on it, but I, I believe also, it's true. Yes. I, I procrastinate so much about stuff that I haven't written a draft of my screenplay yet. But in my head, I'm on like the eighth draft because I, I every time I'm ready to sit down and write it, something will get in the way. And then I'll fix things. And so it changes and changes. Sometimes it goes back, but it's always evolving in my head. And I think that's probably why I procrastinate because in a way, once it's on paper, it's over. And yeah. Maybe I, maybe I like the... I, I, I don't know why I'm talking so personally when we've got one minute left. <laughs> I know what you mean, though. It's um, like asking someone out, isn't it? It's like when you kind of like think about what life would be with them. It's like you're, it's cosy and safe. And then once you ask them, it's like real. Yeah, it's perfect in your head. Yeah. I, but I also no, think that not. is it's writing. Not, I don't think that is, that almost says that you're saying it like you're cheating. Whereas I think that's exactly how you should do things. Yeah, you I should be too. thinking about and solving it. You are still writing it, even if it's not on paper. Oh, thanks. You're kind of getting the writing been... for free. It, yeah. In a sense. That's why it's so wonderful. But as Nat said, it's just hard to, to go, life. it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, Izzy, um, you, I think, I'm such a massive fan of yours. I think you're brilliant. And thank you very much for coming on our show. Thank you for coming. Uh, for lowering yourself. To be on our show, <laughs> I'm I'm sad to say I've now got to hand you over to Nathaniel <laughs> to, to play to play the if it just is just really thought it couldn't get any worse. I mean, it's gonna get worse because we're now gonna play the internationally famous game Better or Worse with Nathaniel Metcalf. Okay. Like, he's the it? other guy. Uh, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is better or worse, is he? And you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinions to score points. On your opinions. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Beginning with Danny DeVito. Is Danny Glover better or worse than Danny DeVito? <laughs> According to me. Worse. Better. Worse. He's worse. Danny Minogue, better or worse than Danny Glover? Worse. Worse, worse. 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 Kylie Minogue, better or worse than Danny Minogue? Better. Better. Jason Donovan, better or worse than Kylie Minogue? Better. Worse. Worse? Yeah. Okay. Jason, worse than Kylie, right? No? Definitely. I mean, are we talking about like humans? Not even both high cards. As humans? (laughs) Yeah. Sort of in general. Like general vibes? General vibes. I like his vibes, I think. I like his vibes, but I like Kylie's vibes vibes too. Okay. He was great in Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Sure, I like him. He's a family man. Sure. He's a good family man. You know, Jason, Kylie's a family man. There is a problem with this game where I could say something about someone and they could know something awful about them and I'm saying they're great. 
that's a flaw. But but nevertheless, Jason Statham, better or worse than Jason Donovan? I don't know anything better. bad about Jason Statham. Um, He's brilliant. Um, but I'm going to say worse, just because Jason Donovan is sort of very... Much better. I'm going to say better. Better, better. okay. Christian Bale, better Christian or worse Bale. than Jason Statham? Worse. 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 <laughs> Christian Slater, better or worse than Christian Bale? Better. 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 <laughs> In the hang of this now. Liam Neeson, better or worse than Christian Slater? Better. Worse. Worse. Worse? I'm not getting the hang of it at all. <laughs> when <laughs> I get it right, I feel like, yeah, this is the yeah. game. This yeah. is the game. It's tapping into the, the source yes, again. Yes, it is. Hugh Grant, better or worse than Liam Neeson? Better. Uh, better. Packed better. off Hugh. He's done a lot, of, a lot of stuff for that campaign. Colin Firth, better or worse than Hugh Grant? Oh, um... <sighs> God, this is hard. Worse? They're high cards. I think he's he's better. I think Um, he's better, but I think Nathaniel thinks he's worse. I think... I've got to say what you think. I think you think he's worse. I do think he's worse. (laughs) But you've played the game exactly how you're supposed to play it. And not a lot of people um, do. Oh, really? So what do other people do? I think people just get confused or they're just trying to get to the end. (laughs) Oh, no, you you've scored very low, I'm afraid, Izzy. Okay. Um, I think I think I scored a ten. Then you might have done um, a ten. But Izzy, you scored a six, I'm afraid, which is uh, right. Okay, so you scored a six, which means you're not as good as Dame Baptiste and Marina Sirtis with nine. Uh, Baz from Massive Dragons with eight. Uh, but you are as good as Jamie Adams and Kyle Gass with six, and you're better than Sarah Gibbs with five. So six is not at all humiliating yet, but it will be by the end of the year. Um, so, <laughs> um, well, what a lovely hour. It's been um, terrific. Thanks, Izzy. Uh, good luck Thank with Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the clubhouse, Izzy, and goodbye. We're almost out of the woods if we're not out of the woods yet, uh, so everyone look after each other. Bye. Goodbye.